All right, so you're in college, sitting here with my friend Joe again. You're in college, have already changed majors from engineering to construction management, and your first job in college is working at Auto Bell. And at this point, you told me you are living off student loans, a little help from the family, and you go work at Auto Bell. So would you say Auto Bell is a job where you have a lot of barriers or entry, or would you say most people could probably get a job at Auto Bell? I would probably tell you if I was interviewing with you that that they only hire the most elite people. Uh, but I think that um, I I don't think there's a lot of barriers to entry to working at Audubon now. Um, and yeah, this is the first job I have as when I come back to college. Um, and yeah, absolutely, absolutely not. If they were willing to hire me, they didn't have any kind of reservations about hiring anybody. I was I was young and dumb. <laughs> All right, awesome. So at Autobell, um, how much are you making there? Man, that's a good question. I think the minimum wage at the time was five twenty-five, so maybe five seventy-five. Um, so so minimum wage for sure. All right, you're making minimum wage. This is great. This podcast is called Zero to Sixty. So we're trying to figure out how you went from zero dollars, we'll call it minimum wage, or a, a job with zero barriers of entry, to sixty k. So you're making five seventy five an hour working at Auto Bell, only the elite. And uh and what do you do you make tips there? Um what happens? Tell me about Auto Bell. Auto Bell's amazing. To be completely honest, if I could make six figures at Auto Bell, I'd work at Auto Bell. I mean you work outside, you I mean everybody's so nice at Auto Bell and the management is just so cool and it's it you get exercise, you know. And you get to meet new people every day, and you get to you get to really make them smile. You know, you really get to send them send people off the lot. You know, happier than they were before. They, I mean, who doesn't like a clean car? Uh, yeah, I mean, the terrible people don't like clean cars. That's it. You know, but yeah, the, people can tell when you auto bell. I should we should have worked that out where they pay us for this because it, this is like a one long plug for auto bell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if the story hands up, yeah, good point. Um, so I might need to be reminded of your question. Oh, so like uh, you said, how did the pa- what's it like? What's the job like? So the day to day, you know, I get in pretty early. You know, thank goodness, get in pretty early. These beautiful days, and I get a early at Audible seven thirty, so not very early. <laughs> and I'm making minimum wage, and I'm making tips. So uh, I guess the cleaner that I get somebody's car. You know, it's an economic decision at that time. You're learning economics. You're, you know, I need to be able to do a great many cars, but at the same time, I need to be able to do well enough on each car to get a good tip. So that's a good lesson right there. Um, It sounds like you may be applying that to later careers in life. Um, So you're working for tips at this point. Did you notice anything like if you wash it better, you get a good tip? If you kind of talked to the person or schmoozed them, you got a good tip and you watched it good. Were there any um, normalcies in how you got a good tip versus a no tip? You know, there truly isn't. There truly isn't like any reflection, I want to say, of uh, like every now and then you try to do a good job on each car. And I think you have a minimum that you're willing to put into each car and that's different per person. And then some people, and it truly is dependent on the people. You know, people either really appreciate how hard you're working and how cold it is outside or how hot it is outside. But the the key 
Actually, that's a really good question, Colby. The key is just to clean as many cars as possible because there's no way to control whether or not you're going to get a good tipper or a bad tipper. All right, so you're at Auto Bell working there part-time. How many hours a day would you say you're working there per week while you're at school full-time? I want to say 20 to 25, depending on how the how much how many cars were coming through at that time this season and also whether or not i had exams or something like that sweet so we'll call it round 575 up to six bucks an hour we'll say plus tips maybe eight bucks an hour um 10 max uh all right so eight ish and about 20 to 25 hours a week so you're probably making about four to six grand a year maybe you just have some spending money, it sounds like, and, and you're living the rest of your life off loans. Uh, you're in school. Um, do you get promoted at Auto Bell? You know, that's a good question. Um, let's see. So I do I do get promoted, actually. I, I almost immediately become like a crew leader, which is essentially just uh, you just – it's something that they give to people that are really, you know, have a good mindset maybe and work a little bit harder – uh, to essentially just to appease us and just and and just to to keep us happy because you know it, it's it's funny because these kind of rewards you know just being selected out of the crowd you know and told that you do a really good job is you know that was enough for me I didn't need to make any more money I'm a blue shirt you know <laughs> I'm a blue shirt I'm a crew leader man come on um and uh and that I eventually do get promoted into sales I assume when you get promoted to sales, that means you're no longer washing. You're kind of taking the orders at the car. What's that like? I was furious because you don't make nearly as much money. You make commission, but the commission does not, no matter what they tell you, the commission does not translate into the same amount of money that tips give you. And uh, so at Autobell, you're you're selling, and remember, this is one long plug for Autobell. That that's all this show is. Um, you're you're selling different types of car washes. You could get, you know, gloss on it. You can get gloss on your tires. You can get um, a manager special. You can get Rain-X. You can get armor on the outside of your car, on the inside of your car. Things along that. You get a lot of options. You get a, and it um, and I truly think maybe it it from a perception standpoint people might spend a little bit longer on your car if you spend a little bit more money um that's for sure what did you learn from that sales like going from washing to selling um because you're in sales now so what kind of things did you learn early on an auto bell that you would say started to shape you and and mold you as as a professional at, you know that's a great question what did i learn at auto bell and sales and, and this is where i would plug Everybody needs to get a sales job. You need to learn how to sell because you need to learn how to sell yourself. Or you just need to learn how to, you need to learn how to be able to like talk something up or you you really, I mean, I can't, this is where I'm going to say like, you can't, uh, you, it's, it's priceless. Um, and up until that point, I, I, well, in, in high school, you know, I would have sold a little bit of this or a little bit of that. Uh, you know, and yeah, and I think the mostly what I sold in high school was just uh, please don't beat me up. Like reasons today to not beat up this little Asian guy with feminine hands. You know, <laughs> like why why don't you want to? You know, so up until that point, I had only sold uh, my safety, but um, <laughs> but now you know the first I want to say the first thing that I learned at Autobell 
the first thing I learned at Audible about sales, and I was terrified, by the way, terrified because these were wealthy customers. And here I am, this, yeah, you have to ask these wealthy people for money, you know, um, and you're asking for a fair amount of money. You know, it's worth every dollar. You know that, but do they know that? You know, like they're going to yell at me if I ask them. You know, there's so many things running through my head. These people are smarter than me. They make more money than me. You know, who who am I to ask these people to spend more money on a car wash? But, it, you know, I just luckily in that moment, you know, I made a decision. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, what's the worst that could happen? I'm just going to go for yes. I'm just going to, you know, they could say yes, maybe. So in that sales job, how did you transition from like, I'm really nervous to ask these people for money, your first sale, to having fun with it and say, hey, you know you want some Rain-X, here's the forecast coming up. What? Well, how did you have fun with that and really make it your own and, and find your sweet spot in that position? You know, I think Audible did a really good job of allowing us to get a free car wash every week. And uh, I don't think that they really wanted us to put scents or tire gloss on our car or anything like that, but of course we did. You know, whenever the manager wasn't looking, of course, he never supported this kind of behavior. He was a great person. Uh, Rob Stuck, shout out. You're a great person. One of my one of my early mentors and one of the first people to believe in me, and I love you to death, man. You're awesome. Um, but, uh, you know, so you, you know how clean your car can be. So, one, it's easy to sell a product that works. Um but two, what I did personally, uh, you know, you know that that's what the the system. It was a good system first and foremost. But what I did personally was I just said, "Why not? Let's just give it a shot." Like, so much of my life has been defined by why not. You know, people can, you know, all the time give you an excuse or a justification as to you know, um, but why not me? You know, why not? Why can't I be successful? So I would just I would just offer the most expensive car wash possible first. You know, and then just, you know, most people, most people, you know, they wouldn't want to get into it with the car wash salesman guy. So they would, you know, they would maybe just meet and they wanted to spend, you know, 12 bucks. I was offering them a $35 wash. They said, hey, you, you have any $22 washes? As a matter of fact, I do. Here you go. And that's how, you know, I want to say like 90% of, of my sales went for first time uh, customers. All right. So a little bit of a recap, uh, just real quick. While you're selling, how much are you making? Is it above five seventy-five an hour? Or what's what's the scorecard now? I'm thinking I'm making like twenty-five cents more than the minimum wage because I I demanded a raise and I got one, <laughs> and then I'm making like fifteen percent on sales or something ridiculous. Maybe even like seven percent on my sales. Uh, I would say I was probably making like eight dollars an hour. So not that much of a change from washing and tipping. All right, so maybe a little down. So how to get to zero to 60, um, go down. All right. Um, so you're in school at this time, and your your future's probably not in car washing, um, as we know right now, may, maybe in the future. But uh, But what is life like? in school are you involved in any clubs are you involved in anything um you know i know i'd like for you to talk about the blood drives because you set a school record there and um and how are you separating yourself from the crowd because we're trying to get you from zero to 60 and right now we're just at auto bell so what are you doing in those hours of the week where you're not those 25 hours at auto bell that's a really good question i want to come back to auto bell too because i applied a lot of the 
lessons I learned in these clubs to Autobell, and I actually, you know, we probably don't need to come back other than this quick moment, but I was in the top five in sales, like in average dollar per sale, you know, like it was something ridiculous, like $22 was my average, which is absurd when you think about like car washes. How is this dude, you know, averaging $22 per sale, you know, um, and, uh, you know, just that go for no, why not me? I mean, it's priceless. Um, at least it was for me. So in school, I'm excelling. I'm in construction management. I'm finally doing something that I really, really care about. I'm paying. Ooh, you know, you know, I wish that I was really good at Microsoft Excel. But uh, at the time, no, I was excelling and I was making A's. It was very rare that I got a B. Um, I'm paying for my own school with scholarships and grants. So I think as a non-traditional student, I'm 24 at the time. As a non-traditional student, you know, this is a couple of years after I started Autobell, you know. Um, you know, so let's let's start off with that when I'm 24, I start paying for my own school. Uh, I get, I'm getting grants from the federal government. They have really good programs for non-traditional students. If you're older, if you're thinking about going back to school, go back to school. You know, somebody else is probably going to pay for it. Hell, the worst comes to worst, you can get a free community college degree, which is something that I probably should have done. You know, man. But anyways, I'm doing well in school. And my why not me mindset, you know, and I'm, you know, is really kind of flourishing there as well because I'm jo- I've joined a, a fraternity which is something that I never in a million years thought I'd join, having the time of my life. I met you through the fraternity, so that that in and of itself paid for itself. Some of my best friends are still in the fraternity, or, you know, I met through the fraternity, and uh, I'm also getting involved civically. Um, Like you said, you mentioned the blood drives. I meet the American Red Cross, uh, Lisa Cole, probably one of them, another mentor, Rob Stuck, Lisa Cole, you know, and she has high expectations for me. Something about me or maybe she was just selling it because she needed to do well I don't know what it was but I'd like to think that she saw something in me she just knew that I was ambitious she knew that I you know she knew that I had that why not me mindset and we kind of worked with each other to uh to to break some records at UNC Charlotte all right so breaking records we definitely hear about that blood drive breaking records so if I can remember correctly, you set the UNC Charlotte or maybe even the North Carolina record for largest blood drive in the history. Can you confirm that? I want to say that, that I broke the UNC Charlotte record like nine times. Like we, <laughs> The record wasn't that high, but it was high for us. And I want to say that the first time we did it, it was like 300 pints collected, which is amazing because for every pint you could potentially save three lives. So UNC Charlotte potentially saved, with the guidance of Lisa Cole, uh, saved about 900 lives that time. And we we said that was the first time we broke the record. I think we had done like 300 or 200% of the record. The record at UNC Sh- or in North Carolina at the time, I think was 1,100 pints, and it was held by UNC Chapel Hill. And we, that was our goal, was to beat them, because if we beat them, then we do the 10th largest blood drive in the nation has ever seen. We do the number one blood drive in North Carolina, and that was our goal, giant killers. All right, did you do it? No. <laughs> we we didn't, but we we came close. We cl- we came really close. We had to overcome a lot of obstacles. Um, And we set really big goals for ourselves. We really did. I mean, I think we went from like 300 to 700 at a year. Um, I want to say the highest blood drive we did was in the 800s. I don't remember specifically. 
Yeah, I want to say that we got like 950 people to sign up, but at the end of the day, between the amount of pints they could use and the amount of people that didn't just walk away, it was like, it was in the 800s. So we got really close. That's a really big that's a really big deal. How was it what was it like prepping for that because you need to know a lot of people for one. You need to start using sales skills to get people in the door and but you also need to use a different set of skills which is leadership to rally people around the cause so how do you get 800 college kids in the middle of a what's up all right so we're back and take a quick break right there um joe we were talking about the blood drive how do you get 800 people to give blood 800 college kids are in the middle of class doing their thing completely consumed in the self and you get them to take time out of their day and give part of their blood get needles stuck in them and give up their time money energy for the rest of the day so you can get blood out of them how do you do it uh well First and foremost, I mean, the American Red Cross has a good organization. I mean, they, they literally get blood. They sell it at a very low cost to hospitals, so hospitals can get blood, you know, at a very low cost. And then the Red Cross uses, uses those funds to fund their disaster relief all over the globe, which is amazing. And they hire amazing people like Lisa Cole, who has the this strategic mind, you know, um, to be able to... She she knew the strategy. She had researched the large blood drives. She knew what they did. And all she needed was like this crazy kid who she would say, hey, we don't have this. Go get it. And I'm like, okay. You know, maybe, I don't know, courageous enough to say okay and stupid enough to believe that I could actually do it. You have to get, you have to use your sales skills, but you also have to use leadership skills. So you don't run this whole blind blood drive yourself how does you know hiring people or delegating how do those skills start to come in to making this success happen it, that's a great question that's a really good point um leadership and salesmanship really helped me here and it's funny because at the time truly at the time i didn't even think of it as leadership i just thought of it as like I know that it, I was like super excited, yeah, like you said, and that also like I also didn't want to lose like too much of my weekends or my days. I didn't have much time to begin with. I was working so hard in school and and work and all the organizations that I was in that I was it was almost kind of a selfish thing. I was like, oh, you know what? I'll ask other people to help, and then I can do less. And and true, truly, it actually made me so much more work for me. But I was having such a good time. And uh, the first thing that I did, the first thing that it would was everything that we did was with our organization, Lambda Chi Alpha. Great organization, great kids. There was, it's a fraternity. There's a lot of, lot of talent, a lot of brains that you could utilize there. But I knew that it was, I knew that if we were to truly throw the, you know, largest blood drive that North Carolina has ever seen, the tenth largest blood drive that uh, the United States had had even seen, that uh, that I was gonna. It was going to take more than that. It was going to take more than us. Lisa Cole knew it. I knew it. And at the time, there was no way to get in contact with every... There was over 100 organizations on campus, and there was no way to get in contact with them other than to go through the campus organization website, click on the website, and then you get the, the student who's in charge. So I what I had to do, this is my first 
you know, foray into data mining, I had to take every single organization and put it into Excel and then take the student leader that was in charge that you can only get through clicking on their particular website. So I click and then I have to go back, you know, back, back to the, the campus events page and I'm making this database myself. So I have a hundred emails, you know, that I, that took, this took me hours, if not like a quarter of a day. I, I want to say that this took me closer to six hours than it did one. It took a long time. And so I have this database. So I have this very powerful tool that I just created at my fingertip. And I just create this this email saying, you know, I believe, you know, I really believed in the American, American Red Cross. And I really believed in what we were doing. And I really believed in UNC Charlotte. I really loved it. And I was going to tap into everybody's love for UNC Charlotte, everybody's love to help you know, for helping other people. And I was going to say, let's do something that's going to put UNC Charlotte on the map, not only in North Carolina. I'm so sick of UNC Chapel Hill getting all the UNC love. You know, we're going to be the best UNC at something. And we're going to be the best in, you know, the state and the, one of the best in the nation at something. So let, let's do it. And, uh, and I got a lot of responses. A lot of people wanted to help out. So that's the sales side. Now, actually organizing and executing the blood drive. Talk to me about some of the delegation skills on blood drive day. Take me through that real quick. So a lot of work went into prepping for blood drive day. Blood drive day itself was probably pretty easy. Um, but I think this, and this is all taking place over a couple of years. I mean, we went from 300 to 700 to, to 800, you know, So, so what I I break the record and probably like yeah probably like six blood drives in you know so I'd, I've had years you know of experience probably like a couple of years of experience you know just getting to three hundred and then a, another couple of years getting to you know eight hundred and uh, so this was truly a lesson in leadership truly a lesson in project management where I had a this was a truly humbling experience because people were doing things that I was doing before. They were doing it in 30 minutes and it would take me like two weeks. So this is where I truly, I remember there was one time that I came over to this kid's house and he was partying. It was like the middle of the day. He was partying. I was like, I told you to do this. And he said, we did it. I said, there's no way you did it because it's only been a day. I gave you this task yesterday and you guys have, you know, I, I saw you yesterday and I'm seeing you today. You're like drinking already, you know, and they said, Joe, we did it. Like, look, and they showed me how they had gotten all these local businesses. They did the same thing I did. They created a database of all the local businesses' contact information. They reached out to them. They got sponsors in like 15 minutes, and I think part of me wanted them to go out and do it the old-fashioned way just so they could experience how difficult it was. I was so mad. And, and like that's so such a stupid thing to be mad about because this is like an amazing thing, but I was mad. I like yelled at them. They were so confused. And you know, I apo eventually apologized, and I <laughs> that was a huge lesson learned is that you're not even close to the smartest person in the room. You're not even close to the best that that every single one of these things, marketing, fundraising, you know, awareness. So just let people like, yeah, let people be people, give them a huge goal and let them figure out how to do it in their own way because they're probably going to do it way cooler than he will. That's that's really good. I remember there's a story of John Wooden, uh, Wooden, I think he was former UCLA, bas UCLA basketball coach, like legend. And um, he said he would he would find out where the players shot the best at, like their highest percentage. And when it was their turn to shoot, like in the play in the game, he would he would organize the plays so they were shooting from their highest 
statistically like likelihood shot to to make it. So it was really cool, uh, good lesson in delegation to put people in a place to, to succeed and just let them do do what they do. So that's the blood drive. Um, let's do a little bit of recap because we're trying to get from zero to 60. So at this point, you're working at Auto Bell. You're finishing up school. You've set the UNC Charlotte blood drive record. So you know a lot. Um, you've learned a lot about leadership and delegation and sales from there. And uh, you're involved in a fraternity. Um, take me through what experiences you learned inside a fraternity uh, really quick. Like, did you hold any offices? Did you just party a lot and meet a bunch of people? Or, like, how did your experience in a fraternity shape you and lead to your success now? Well, let's say that I I definitely partied more than anything. Um, and uh, I was... Let's see, I was external vice president, I want to say twice, meaning that I was like the PR rep and the uh the PR rep and the um the community service rep. There and you know, that there's a lot of blood drive involved in that, but there's also a lot of like chasing the president down and like forcing him to come back to the house and put pants on at three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> and because it's PR, right? You wanna you wanna you need to keep your reputation intact. And uh, and then I was also internal vice president. I didn't do it nearly as well as the internal vice president because uh, I wanted to be president, you know, and, uh, and, you know, I think maybe this was maybe like a little bit of my young, younger narcissism, you know, or maybe just like my arrogance, but they, you know, again, another lesson in humility was when they didn't even want me to be president. Like, I don't even think I was a finalist and I think I got the vice presidency because they felt bad for me. So like, it's kind of, I kind of salty. I was kind of like petty you know, almost like a petty tyrant, but you know, it was really good because we went through like a really tough time and my, uh, my buddies and one of my best friends, Christopher Alba was president and he taught me a lot about leadership because he, he just really kept me roped in and kept me involved. And he, it, I'm so glad that I didn't have to go through those struggles. Cause I don't know if I would have done as well as he did. And he, I still look up to him to this day. He's younger than me. He's like my little big brother, but um, he truly taught me a lot about leadership and so did the fraternity. They taught me a lot about humility and how to, you know, to kind of work a role, even though it's not the role that you wanted. Are you working at Auto Bell until you graduate? I work at Auto Bell until I graduated in May and I work in Auto Bell until January 2011 of that year. And, uh, yeah, and still selling and and still you know coming in the top three top five of sales thinking maybe this is something that i could do i graduated in may 2011 i mean um no i graduated in may 2011 yeah so i'm unemployed i'm i'm just a student from uh january to may working on kind of like senior thesis and getting a job and all right, so this is really good. So you've had a lot of campus experiences, blood drive, fraternity. You've met a lot of people, um, built a lot of really deep relationships, kind of been on a roller coaster to get up to this point in the sense of grew up um, blue collar, middle class, went to school, dropped out, came back, changed majors, and now you're about to graduate. So again, our podcast is called Zero to 60. So we're trying to figure out how you got from zero income to 60k and when you graduate you're literally at zero because you've quit auto bell so you're no longer making that eight bucks an hour um so you're at zero what's going through your mind as you near graduation and how do you land your first job 
you know, it's kind of crazy. At the time, I didn't even, I wasn't even looking for a job. I remember thinking that I, I, I knew at the time that I wanted to get into finance. And um, even though I'm a construction management degree, I, I took some finance and some, econ- there's actually a lot of finance, ec- economics and accounting in construction. You know, it was pretty amazing. This is when I kind of got the bug, you know, and, um, you know, it, and it, it was I was surprised. I couldn't believe how much administrative, you know, business administrative work went into construction projects. Um, also, I want to give you, Colby, a shout out because I never could have made those blood drives work if you didn't introduce me to Beth Harden. Beth Harden is the vice chancellor of business affairs. And before Colby and Beth, we had no campus support, none. They were refused. They were absolutely refused for some odd reason. They refused to send out an email and say a blood drive is on this particular day. Maybe they didn't want to, you know, they, they didn't want to set a precedent, you know. But So I had to sell the vice chancellor of business affairs on this event that was going to be a nationwide event. This was going to be, this was going to put us on the map, you know. And she, she eventually, you know, got to know me loved me and, and you know uh she huge mentor great person and she um was able to you know send out a, a nation a campus-wide email which was good anyways going back to yeah yeah well i knew you and then you know that was my that was my ticket to to, to people like beth because you were just such an amazing person um always uh the north star you know when things were going Things were going weird, you know, in college or something like that, or I was partying too much. I was always able to, you know, talk to you and iron sharpens iron. You were able to keep my head on straight. And uh, and another thing you did was you got me that job interview at VectorVest, you know, because. So this is really cool because you're the first person on the show who actually hasn't had an internship and you're about to graduate college. Did we leave that out or that that's true? Pretty true. Yeah, that's true. I think I interviewed for an internship, and at the time I was paying for my own school, and the guy said, hey, you know this is unpaid, right? And I said, okay, see you later. <laughs> so no internships, no. All right, so you're graduating college in construction management, but you like finance, and you have no experience, pretty much. Um, so, <laughs> so this is really exciting. So there is still hope if you're graduating with no experience and no internships. And you want to work in a field different from your major. This is going to be interesting how you literally get from zero to 60. So walk me through that first job out of college and how do you get it? Uh, it was 2011. It was um, it was maybe the first good year we had and it was only halfway through it. Because if you, I don't know if you guys remember, 2007 was the financial crisis. Is that I think at times it was it was larger than the financial crisis that caused the Great Depression, you know, in size and scale. Yeah, it was a huge deal, you know. And under you know, the leadership at at, I'm in construction. Nothing's getting built. It was the, these, you know. Of course, it started off with residential construction, but I mean that that has uh, effects in commercial construction and uh, companies that I want to be working for going out of business left and right. I mean, they just don't exist anymore. And people sometimes use residential construction to fund the, to keep, you know, they don't make any money on it, but it keeps the lights on. They can keep themselves paid. They can keep their employees paid until the commercial job comes back. So now they can't, you know, the commercial jobs, everybody's fleeing into commercial products because, um, 
companies, I mean, of course, you know, people are spending, you know, this is the, the, no reason, no reason to get into an economic lesson here, but state, local and federal governments are spending f- uh, infrastructure and commercial jobs. Everybody's moving into that, you know, and it's competitive. So there, there's, there's, there's what appears to be literally no jobs on the horizon, you know, it's a financial crisis. You know, it's a debt crisis as opposed to an asset bubble. So, you know, lending is also low. And I want to get into finance with a construction management degree. Needless to say, I, I was, you know, nobody wanted me. It was a hot potato. You know, it was, let me toss this resume around and go straight to the trasher. And, and it seems like it did go straight to the trash. <laughs> so, again, I'm really excited to see how this story ends up because not only are – you graduate with no internships and pretty much no skill. Now you're even <laughs> doing the victim mindset and saying it's because of the economy that I can't get a job in construction management. Um, so you're doing that, but I ultimately know that's not you. Uh, you're just kind of giving our, our listeners a little bit of background because living during that recession was a little little scary. Um, but you you pivot. You just you don't. Ultimately, you didn't say I. You know majored in construction management, there's no jobs, and we go back to Auto Bell or something, you ultimately pivoted. So walk me through how you get this first job out of college with all those negative factors or seemingly negative factors they just pointed out. Yeah, it's important to know that to note that I, I didn't have, uh, you know, now looking back on it, I realized I was the victim. But at the time, I didn't know enough about the, the, you know, what was happening in the global economy to be, you know, I wasn't smart enough to know that I was a victim at the time. So, you know, I'm lucky enough to, again, have you, you're working for a company called VectorVest. Um, it is a, it is a software company, an investment management technology company. And I was freaking sold. I was fascinated. You loved it. We still do think that the technology is pretty amazing. We think that the capabilities are pretty amazing, and I just wanted to learn. I didn't care where I learned as long as I was learning, and I was sold. I wanted this job so bad, and so I was lucky enough to get an interview because of Colby because nobody would have given me an interview, you know, so you got to know someone. It's not, you know, it is the notes you take, but it's also the hands you shake, and I get this interview in maybe March, and I hear nothing until May. You interview before you graduate, interview in March 2011, and um, and then you don't necessarily hear anything back until May. Um, so really cool. So I really like that that quote you said, it's not the notes you make, it's sometimes the hands you shake. Is that kind of right? So that was really cool. So this job did come out of a relationship. Me and I had built a great relationship in college and became really, really deep friends. Um, you're actually the only person I think I referred to VectorVest and uh, so that's kind of saying something. <laughs> you're making funny, funny faces at me right now. <laughs> so you're one of the yeah, the only one of the only people I referred to Vector Vest, and um, <laughs> you should take a few seconds just laugh because you're you're being silly. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, I refer you Vector Vest, kind of put my my name out there a little bit. Um, you know, we we can build that job up a lot, but at the end of the day. We're working in a call center, so uh, but we didn't we didn't see it as that, and I think that's why we were successful there. Um, so walk me through getting an interview. Did you do anything different? Did you follow up? Did you come in in a suit? Did you come in in a t-shirt? Like you got the job, 
maybe it was because of my referral, maybe it wasn't, but ultimately I just I just gave someone your name, I just sent someone your resume, I just talked you up, but you got the job. So walk me through that. This is I'm actually going to take this moment to talk about a, a neat story. You said you said did I wear a suit? That's actually a really good question, man. Like um so one, you give me this and and dude, yeah, we 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 really did see it as a, you know, like I remember specifically you telling me I've literally never done this before. I'll probably not do it for anybody else. Like, I really like this job, and I think that you implied, like, if you screw this up, I'll beat you up. Like, it, it, you didn't have to say it. You said it with your eyes. And so, like, I, I'm, i like, like when I go to the interview, I'm, like, suit and tie. I'm wearing a, you know, I'm wearing my, uh, this is another thing, too, is, like, you remember Blue Collar. I'm wearing a, my dad's hand-me-down suit that he literally got made for him in Korea. He, uh, so, in Korea, yeah, because I didn't own a suit. I actually, for fraternity events, I actually went to the Goodwill and I bought suit jackets and I bought ties. And that's another thing, too, is that, you know, while I was doing these, you know, working at the American Red Cross, while I was working at Audubell, people would spend their money on on iPods, this, that, and the other. I bought an iPod once because I lost somebody else's, you know, holding myself accountable. But I would literally go to the Goodwill in Lake Norman because that's, that's where people were wealthy. You got to go to the nice Goodwill. And I would buy... I would buy clothes for work. I would spend my money on shoes. I would buy dress. I didn't have any of this stuff. You didn't like blue collar again, blue collar. I'm, I'm saving up, you know, and buying, you know, on president's day, Brooks brothers has a 70% off sale. I'm going and buying dress clothes, you know, and I'm spending my money on these things and I'm kind of building, you know, um, I'm just trying to build myself, build a foundation, you know, that, that I didn't have, you know, because I'm, one of the reasons I joined the fraternity because, was because I knew that unless I learned from someone who was making a lot of money, I was never going to make any money. I didn't know how to make money. I didn't know at all. So I'm just copying these people, you know, and, and trying to dress like they dress, but I have to pay for it myself. So you walk into the interview with the suit on. Um, real quick, take me through before the interview. Did you email these people? Did you have a phone interview? What happened there? I don't think I did. I think that uh, I think that you literally handed them the resume, and then you told me you told me that I had a uh, yeah be there at this particular time. And I remembered I was trying to lose a lot of weight at the time, so I was drinking a ton of water. And I speed up to Lake Norman. I've never been here before, and I had to use the restroom so bad. And I drive, and I run to the hotel, and they go, "Hey, sir, how are you doing?" I go, "Great." And I run in, and I use their restroom. And then they're like trying to chase me down because they're like, you don't, you don't live here. You're not staying here. Like, what are you doing in here? So like I run out, jump into my car and like speed off and go to Vector Vest. And I meet, um, I think Brian and he interviews me and we just kind of are, you know, going back and forth, negotiating salary and just talking about the job. And it, 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 this is in March and I think it goes pretty well. It's, but it's at that time that he tells me that it's for the three to 11 shift, uh, Monday through Friday, three to 11 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. Yep. I would have preferred 3 a.m. to 11 uh, a.m. <laughs> but it's 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. And uh, I work every other Saturday. So this is this is kind of when the reality is setting in. Like this is going to be a this is going to be a tough job. It's not going to be, be all rainbows and butterflies. Wow. So you're really excited to work at this company. It sounds like you land the job. Um you said you're negotiating salary. Like you don't have a job at this point. What is what does that mean? You know, that's a really good question. I and they, you know, I'm lucky enough to Ben Kudia, another amazing person that worked at the Career Center at UNC Charlotte. 
really talked me up. He really saw my resume and said, dude, you could do anything that you wanted to, you want to do. And I don't know if he just said that to all the boys, you know, that went in there at the career center, but he was an, am- oh, an amazing person Ben, if you ever hear this, thank you so much. Um, and he, he said that there is, should be, you know, you, there needs to be a minimum that you're willing to make. And he would, they would beat it into our heads in the engineering school. Like you shouldn't be making less than X amount. I knew that I was going to another industry in the middle of one of the worst financial crises that the world has ever seen. Crises, not crises, crises that the world has ever seen. Um, but still, I, like I was, it was beaten into my head that I, I do not accept less than forty-five k. So that's what I asked for. I asked. I said, I, at the very least, I'm willing to accept is forty-five k. And he said, it's hourly. And he says, with overtime and bonuses, you should hit forty-five k. And like you said, I have no. I'm making no income at the time. I have no internships. Blue collar in there with hand me down, a hand me down suit and good, you know, goodwill tie and stuff like that. Goodwill shirt, goodwill socks, goodwill shoes. And I go, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, salary and bonuses. I'll hit for that's the same thing, right? So I I agree to it. And uh, so when he slides that piece of paper um, across the across the table, what's the hourly number? Because not at salary. This is an hourly position. What's that number per hour? So on the piece of paper, he, he slid over. It said, "Get out." No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> it uh, he didn't give me. He he like it was only at the end of the interview that he told me it was 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. And then they he told me that I should hit 45k with salary. I mean, at the time, like I didn't even know that it was an hourly job. He just told me 45k with overtime and bonuses. I should be good to go. So like I kind of. Like it should be, I should have been able to derive that, but that just goes to show like how little you could possibly know, you know, like that I knew as as little as you could possibly know. I want to say, oh man, I don't even remember, but it could have been more than fifteen dollars an hour. It could have been more than fifteen dollars an hour. All right, so your first job out of school um, degree. You're working at a call center, making fifteen dollars an hour. So we'll call that thirty k a year. So the good news is we're halfway to 60. Um, we're zero, and we got to get to 60. So we're at, we'll call it 30K. And I'll go ahead and fill in, but your salary and bonuses, maybe that was a little bit of a stretch. I don't know if it got to 45K. Um, yeah, <laughs> maybe they thought you were working more hours. Um, but talk me through that job and kind of how you start off in it. Um and take me through your your first promotion at that job, your first pay raise. That oh, so you know, I I start off and I I'm just kind of. It's my first job. I'm, my first professional job at a college. I'm getting this job with an econom with a marketing major from Clemson, an economics major from East Carolina, and a former Marine. So I'm like, oh, that's pretty good. So that's my team. That's these are the 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 new people that I'm learning, you know, from and. They're good people, great people. To, I mean, the the everybody at VectorVest was pretty awesome, to be completely honest. And, uh, you know, I'm just kind of learning. I'm drinking from a fire hose. This is my first, like, real job, you know. And, like, this isn't washing cars. Like, you, there's a lot to learn. And I go through, I think through, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's at least a two-week process where I'm just learning the technology and I'm learning the phone system. And so this is like a big deal. This is very difficult for me. Like this is a lot of responsibility, more than I've ever had. In that job description, what are you doing day to day? So day to day, I start off taking 
I start off in technical support, if I'm not mistaken. And I, I start off just doing, um, essentially just pe- telling people to like uninstall the program and install, reinstalling the pro. I mean, that had to be like 70% of what I do. And another thing too, is the people that are investing are typically older and they're not very tech savvy. And, uh, but they're, I mean, if you take the, if you take a moment to get to know these people, they've had amazing lives or they're living all over the world and they're very endearing people. They're very loving people, man. I could, I, I tell you, <laughs> I met so many people on the phones that, that told me I could do whatever it is that I wanted to do. They were, you know, they, they were so nice, you know, and I don't know if it was a reflection of how I treated them or if that was, they just set the bar that high, but it was pretty amazing. So I work there as well, and I'll give a, a little recap. So I shared a similar shock and awe when I got there. This is really cool. Um, you you come in and sit at a desk, and you've got like two and three monitors, definitely bigger than the laptops we had at school. And not only that, there's stock graphs on these monitors and all this really cool technology. So you, you just feel cool. You're like, you feel like a trader on the New York Stock Exchange or something. Um, but it's like you said, these are... Essentially, VectorVest is a software company that sells software to individual investors to help them make better decisions when they trade. So these people calling in are managing their own money and trading essentially their own portfolios, and they're using this software. So it's a really good point that maybe these people weren't exactly tech savvy, and we had to walk them through uninstall and reinstall in the program, or you know, it was welcome to the world of Windows 7 and XP. But these were very high achievers. Um, and they're just calling us for help. So you're with, um, these people. Do you ever get beyond 15 bucks an hour at VectorVest? I did. I did after, uh, to directly answer your question. I want to say that I, I did maybe, I, I want to say that I left in like a year to a month, if not 11 months. I think the first promotion was three months. I think it was, uh, I went from 15, I want to say that I made like a 7% raise or something like that. It, I went maybe like, maybe like, it might, 18 sounds more correct. Like $18 an hour plus the overtime and bonuses. I think it's, I think actually our group learned, a, I don't know, the, the way that they told it to us was that we were getting the largest three-month increase, you know, we they really want to retain us. Um, but no, I, I think that it, at that time, you know, if you could last three months, you're going to get a raise like that. That's when they, you know, the trial period is over. Now you said that you left VectorVest in a year or so. Um, so you start out at 15, you get a raise at 18. You're in a call center. Um, I, rem- I remember working you with, you were a very, you're like life of the party there. Like everybody there loved you. You brought a lot of energy everywhere you went and um but you said you you were left there and i i mean you left there well well before i did um so what was going on in your mind saying you know i love this job this is great i'm learning a ton but ultimately you hit a point and said maybe i don't want to work in this call center forever maybe i'm did you see a ceiling to the people around you or what made you start to explore their options that's a good question what made me i think the direct so in history when we talked about history we talked about indirect things and then we talked what was the direct cause um so the direct cause was my girlfriend at the time and she expected a lot out of me she really did and I don't know if it was for selfish reasons like she 
I, I you know, I, I'm not going to name her by name, you know, but my other mentors, you know, they just, they, they didn't have to help me. She, we were living together at the time. So she, she, if in order for her, you know, lifestyle to increase, my lifestyle had to increase. So she, and, but, but I think at the, the same time, she did really love me and she did, she did think she was, she wasn't nearly as mature and as supporting as the other mentors in my life but she surely did expect a whole lot out of me and that was like a really good direct catalyst and also I'm she was indirectly supportive of, of me we could we could probably think of some other things and we'll come back to those terms um maybe at a later date but she was she really did she man she really did uh she really did light a fire under my butt and she was really she really kind of like every day and she wasn't afraid to talk about it which was, I'm actually really appreciative of looking back at it but uh another thing too was that I was working the more the indirect causes um you know they and these are probably you know the the iceberg is 70% underwater these this this is the 70% I'm spending every waking moment reading every single book I can on the market I've read I checked out every the stock market and options and technical trading, fundamental training. I'm, I checked out every single book in the VectorVest library and read it at least once. And now I'm buying books that you're recommending because you're trading advanced options at this time and you're learning advanced options. I'm learning advanced options from you. And I'm teaching the guy that's supposed to be teaching me trading about advanced options. These are options that, you know, are pretty advanced. Let's just leave it at that. And... Um, you can control a lot of money with a little bit and I'm making, I'm printing money at this time. And, um, I, we, yeah, we, I thought I was going to be rich for sure. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe. And that was another thing. I mean, like the, the allure of this, I mean, I felt like I was one of the gods on Mount Olympus, man. I really did. I, th I mean, this is like when you're a blue collar kid, you think wall street, that's where, that's where the money is, you know? And I'm, I, I speak the language now, man. I'm helping these people. I'm, people are physically calling me from Wall Street to get my help. And I'm learning and, uh, you know, I'm adamant about adamant about getting out from this desk. Not even, not getting away from the desk, but maybe just taking on more responsibility. I really was super ambitious and I worked very hard. I mean, as you know, I, I read so many books, learned so many new aspects and they were going to put me on the retirement strategy team actually as a young man, very young man at the time. I mean, 26, 27 teaching retirement strategies to people that were 60, 65, veteran traders. So it sounds like you had some potential to move up. And just a, a side note, me and you, VectorVest was located in a, in a pretty wealthy part of Charlotte. And I remember at night, you know, we'd get off work at like 11 p.m. Sometimes I'd work the night shift with you guys. And we would just drive to like a few miles away and go to this very wealthy neighborhood. And it'd be like 11, 11.30, maybe midnight. We'd just start walking like, man, one day, one day we're going to live in these houses. One day we're going to we're gonna live on this golf course. We're going to know these people. This is going to be us. Maybe not in, in Cornelius, but somewhere. And we were just keeping that dream alive. You know, being in the stock market, you see how much money's out there. Um, you see how quickly you can make money. On the flip side, you also see how quickly you can lose it. So... I definitely understand that allure. I mean, I I definitely remember our first option trade that that we placed when your first trade together, and yeah, we made like six hundred. I think it was six hundred eight dollars, and thought we were kings. I was like, yeah, man, I told I told you so. Do this all day. Um, so really, really cool there. 
so tell me about, you know, you said you're maybe getting put on the retirement strategies, but did you realize there's a ceiling at VectorVest or because a year and a month or so is not that long to stay at a company. So when did you know you were going to leave that place? Yeah. When did I know that I was going to leave that place? Um, you know, I want to address before I answer that, I want to address the walks that we had, man. That was, thank you for that. That was amazing, dude. We, the expectations we have, we had for ourselves and we, that we have for ourselves. I mean, you are truly who other people expect you to be and you yield infinite power over uh, the people in your community, in your circle, you know, your friends, your family, um, you know, and people are truly who you, you know, at, you know, at, at times, you know, they, they could be who you expect them to be. And I am only here today because you expected me to be great. So I really appreciate that, man. And I remember before that we'd go downtown and we'd pretend to be, we'd drive in your, your wonderful Saturn we had, and we would drive downtown. And I mean, I drive a beat beat up, you know, Corolla with 270,000 miles. So who am I to talk? But like we'd drive downtown and we would just walk around downtown. Like we worked there, like we owned that place. And we would, you know, we drove around the peninsula and like Norman and we just walked around it. Like we owned that place and we would just build the dreams, man. We just set these expectations for ourselves. And, uh, I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you, you having these expectations of me. And that was a beautiful thing as a blue collar kid, man. Just these, somebody else that was dreaming just as big as you were dreaming. So I was dreaming big, you know, we were both dreaming big, maybe a little bit too big. And, uh, at VectorVest, I'm being told that I'm going to help out with the retirement team. Like maybe do a talk from time to time. Um, I think I get, I don't even know if I get a promotion or even a, a pay raise. I think maybe they say that if I do it well for a year, I might be, you know, and at the time I'm, you know, and I think what really kind of set it off for me was that I asked the, you know, um, somebody in the company, he was very high up and I was really ambitious and I really, really wanted to help out. And I asked this person that was very high up at the company, said, what could I do to help? You know, because I really wanted to learn. And he said, Hey, I got a full cup of coffee. You know, um, I'm good. You know, and I was just crushed. I mean, crushed. This was somebody that I looked up to in the company and he did it in front of a lot of people too. It wasn't like, uh, it wasn't even like a, uh, you know, like a private thing. It was like he was trying to belittle me in front of like everyone, you know, for no reason. I mean, who am I, you know? And so I was kind of like, you know, it's just kind of like, man, there's, they don't expect a lot out of me here. And, you know, um, so I wanted to be somewhere where somebody expected a lot out of me. So that sounds like a, a turning point. You meet this really high up executive there and he's like, you're like, Hey, what can I do? You know, I want to help out, want to hustle. I can, I got some free time. And he says, I have a full cup of coffee. I don't think there's anything you can do. So a little bit, little, he probably didn't, you know, he's a, he got to where he's at for a reason. So let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say he didn't mean to belittle you. Maybe he's just making a joke. Um, we're in the South, so maybe we're a little offended by that stuff, but like, but essentially it's good. It's that's, that's your turning point at this company. And that's when you start looking for something else. So again, our podcast is called zero to 60. We're trying to get from zero to 60 K you've got me to $8 an hour. You got me to thirty thousand dollars a year at fifteen bucks an hour, and now let's say you're at eighteen bucks an hour, so we'll call it thirty-six thousand dollars. We got to figure out how you get to that extra twenty-four, and it doesn't sound like you do that at VectorVest, at this call center, at this software investment company. Um, how do you start 
looking for another job? Do you go on LinkedIn? Do you start getting some feelers out there? Do you go back to your roots in construction management? Obviously, this cup of coffee incident was the turning point for you, but you still have to take very practical steps to transition your career. So walk me through that. Good question. Good question. So what exactly, what what steps did I take in order to, to get to my next step? Um, and, and yeah, the, the, the cup of coffee thing was just probably like a catalyst. Um, so at the time, what I'm doing is like, you know, I realized that, you know, I had lost, I'd lost, you know, um, base maybe as a good or lost touch with a lot of people. It had been a year and a month working like this second shift, you know, so you're, you're not seeing anyone. And I said, you know, at the end of the day, like what I care most about is just reconnecting with these people and seeing how they're doing more than anything, you know, so I'm going to lead with that. And if we eventually get to the point where we could talk about maybe finding a spot for me, that'd be great. So I just reach out to a lot of people that are, that are doing, you know, pretty well. Some of them are not doing well. I take this as an opportunity to help other people too, you know, and I, I'm lucky enough to reach out to my buddy, buddy, Corey Dickinson and Corey Dickinson knows how hard I worked in the fraternity. We were fraternity brothers and he, he jumped at the chance of giving me a job because he knew how hard I was willing to work. And uh, like, I literally just said, Hey Corey, how you doing, man? How's the job? You know, because at the time I just wanted to know how he was doing. I knew he moved to Raleigh. And I knew he didn't know a lot of people there. And I just wanted to, at, you know, it was like, it just like one morning I was like, I got to check up on my boy, Corey. And I was like, it wasn't even looking for a job. Like it was like, I got to see what Corey's up to because, and I think, you know, I, I talked to him for a while just about like how he was doing. He said, you know, he was, you know, it was new to Raleigh. He didn't really know anybody. So he's just trying to like get to know the people. But he, he, he actually really, really wanted, you know, somebody there. So he, he was like, dude, you got to come here because it was, it's a cool city. And, uh, you know, and I was in, I mean, Corey just took it from there. It's kind of like you would vector vest, like Corey just immediately recommended me for this job. And then like, before I knew it, I had an interview. Wow. So we've, I can see right now that it's not me or it's not Corey. The common denominator in both these scenarios is you. So you obviously have something in you that makes people want to help you. And I can go ahead and say from my end, and Corey would probably echo this, is that you're the kind of person people just want to be around. Um, you, know, you bring in, you brought a ton of energy to VectorVest. You made work fun. I I set a goal a few years back to never, it was, I put it on my list, said never say no. And I essentially based it around you. I said, you know, Joe Wadford is not going to have a problem finding six pallbearers at his funeral because so many people are going to be there and so many people are going to be raising their hands um, to help out with that because you've always been such a helpful person. I said, I also want to be remembered like that. And one of the things I said is I, I just knew to stop saying no to people. If somebody needs something, of course I'm going to do it. But the most important thing I said, if somebody wants to go out, I'm going to say yes. Because I know that you were always out <coughs> and you were always up, up up in the morning as well. So you were just always the life of the party. And these relationships that you built weren't, weren't by accident. I think this is one of your biggest skills. So let's not give Corey and I too much credit. You're the type of peop- a person that people want to help because uh, you bring a certain amount of energy to everywhere that you're at. So you reach out to Corey, and he obviously connects you to a job, gets you an interview. What is, what's that, what happened of that? 
Well, thanks, man. That really means a lot. And likewise, man, I don't think you're going to have any trouble getting six people to be, you know, your Paul Bear either, man. I think that, you know, if anything, we could have had a networking contest and whipped it out. And your network was probably bigger than mine, man, because people loved you so much. Um, but, uh, I forgot what the question was. I should have used that language because it erased my memory. <laughs> Thinking about weird stuff. <laughs> yeah, so I reached out to Corey Dickinson, and he was working for Square D by Schneider Electric. Truly an amazing company, dude. And this is like the opportunity to work, you know, in construction again. You know, and I wanted to give it a shot because I'd given finance a shot, and it kind of it kind of broke my heart, you know, and, uh, you know, that's me being dramatic, but I'm young at the time and I'm spoiled, you know, and immature. And, uh, you know, so I'm like, you know what, let me give construction and engineering a shot. You know, I put a lot of freaking work into this degree, you know, an engineering degree is not easy. Construction management, of course, is, is half engineering, half business administrative work. So it's, it's important to understand that there's a lot of engineering that goes into this stuff. I mean, I'm taking physics, physics two, you know, and while I was an engineer, I took calculus one, two, and three differential equations, you know, like, so I, and I, oh, <laughs> uh, you're just downplaying yourself, but, uh, no, I didn't do any of the homework, but that's, the, that's the reason I failed out of engineering school and had to get into another degree, but, uh, so construction, construction management, cool company, a lot of benefits. I mean, and, uh, I, you know, I'm just, it, and, um, I interview with the, the guy's name is Mike Alston. He's just an amazing guy. He's just brilliant. I'm talking to everybody in this company, and they're just brilliant. They're so happy, and they're just – it's such a weird environment in that – Yeah, so I – so I, I – oh, good point. So I reach out to Corey, see how he's doing. You know, Corey's, uh, Corey's loving Raleigh. He's loving his new life. He's working his butt off. And it, the company loves him, of course, because he's an amazing person, truly a humble person. And uh, but he's a little lonely. So, like, uh, you know, and what better to have than a, for, you know, rambunctious fraternity brother, you know, to work with. I, I have, an, you know, a, an engineering, you know, slash construction management degree, you know. So, like, I'm perfect for because we his business, Square D by Schneider Electric, supported the construction industry, more specifically the electrical contracting industry. I told him that I had actually worked as an electrical estimator in college um, on my senior thesis. We picked electrical estimating, and that's like a rare thing. I had no idea how rare it was, but my teachers said it was. You know, I'm super, like, let's just say that I'm super lucky to get this interview because of how rare and specialized this field is, and especially with estimating, and especially in electrical. So, I, uh, like, uh, Corey sets it up again. Corey is just an amazing person. I mean, Corey is, you think I'm good in sales. Corey Dickinson, that is, a, this dude is, like, the sales master. Um, and he sets it up, man, and I get this interview, and so Corey lets me stay at his place, and a same suit, you know, probably a nicer tie, maybe a nicer shirt, maybe, you probably same shoes. But I'm still interviewing in, you know, the same suit. And uh, and I interview with this team, and they're just amazing people. So you interview in your Goodwill suit, probably the same shoes. Hand me, all right, hand-me-down suit, Goodwill shoes. And you interview. Do you just do one interview or multiple? Phone interview, and then what? And then an in-person interview. All right, in-person. And then after that in-person, you get the job? Yeah, I pretty. I mean, essentially, like the HR had the wheels churning, but yeah, essentially, I got the job. I got really lucky, and um, and 
I got super lucky, and they were paying uh, uh, so much money. I mean, compared to what I was making, I mean, I think they offered me, like, you know, mid middle-high 50s, you know. Do you remember the exact number? I do, but I think that, you know, they probably wouldn't want me to say it. You know, so I'm going to say just say middle-high 50s, pretty close to 60. All right, so mid mid 50s or so um it's lame that you won't say the last the, the number but that's a big jump we go from 36 to let's call it 56 54 55 i'll say it. you won't um all right so <laughs> all right so 50 56 57 something like that um that's that's a huge jump that's a that's over a 20k boost literally just from knowing somebody but not not really you spent a lot of time on that relationship with Corey. he's been a great friend for a long time um you spent your whole college doing construction management so that's a big jump so you don't really think about it you probably just moved to raleigh is that right yeah man i mean at the time i lived in charlotte for i mean had to have been like man it's like seven years at the time you know i didn't want to leave you know i'd built so many great relationships and friendships but that was kind of part of the reason I did leave was because um, I didn't want to leave, you know, and that to me, I was like, I need to be able to like move, you know, somewhere and start over. Yeah. I put myself in it really needed to get out of my comfort zone really, you know, and plus the, I mean, for this kind of money, I'd, I'd, I'd I was going to move. Like 54, 56, 57 K you're like making it rain. Um, big deal. Um, but this podcast is called zero to 60. So, we're going to take a five-second break while you you go to the bathroom real quick, and then we'll we'll figure out how to get to 60. Sweet. So we're back. <laughs> All right. So like I said, it's called Zero to 60. We're trying to get 60. You're at 50, upper 50s right now. Um, my thesis here is that to get to 60, you have to get to a pretty professional job. Um, so you're one step after call center here. And my thesis says you have to get promoted at least once. You don't start at 60. So did you get promoted? How'd you get there? You know, this is a, so I guess technically you could say I was at 60 because with the bonus, you know, you're making 10% of your salary. So like the salary plus the bonus, you're making technically you have the potential to make like into the low sixties, you know, but like, so let's not even, yeah, but let's talk about salary. Yeah, exactly. And so I get this job at, at, you know, I get this job to be completely honest and, I mean, if, if you've ever been in construction sales, or especially estimating, you know how rough it can be. I mean, they say that estimating, and like, I'm paraphrasing here, but I saw a quote that estimating is like, you know, a, like an estimated guess based on bad information, you know, to fit a customer that does need that he doesn't even understand his need. You know, it, it's literally a moving target. And I, I, I didn't know this at the time. You know, I'm really good at it now. But at the time, I remember one of the per- first pieces of advice I'm getting from my coworker who's supposed to be training me. Oh my god, this is this was what at the time I thought was a nightmare, you know, but looking back at it it was priceless. He literally goes to me and says, and I'm going to cuss, you know, and I hope it's not, you know, I hope that's okay. But uh I go, "Man, you getting the advice from me?" He goes, "Yeah, you're going to fuck up and you're probably going to fuck up really really bad, so you might as well do it quick and you might as well do it fast while you're doing the small jobs as my assistant so that you don't do it with the big jobs." And I was just I remember being floored. I mean, I'm like, you know, I'm I'm essentially a design engineer designing, like helping to design these medium and low voltage electrical distribution systems. And they're, I mean, at, you know, they're anywhere from like 20 grand to 50 grand up to a $1.2 million projects. 
And this is the advice that this guy gives me. So, you know, it was kind of terrifying. All right, but you moved up at this place. How did you get your salary from mid-50s to above 60? I fucked up a lot. <laughs> I fucked up hard and I fucked up fast, dude. I mean, like, and I, I just kept it going, man. And to be completely honest, I remember... I remember specifically one conversation and, and you know, this, this is sounds silly, but it's, it, you'd really got to be able to like, if you're going to make 60 K at least in this industry, you know, I don't know how it is everywhere else, but if you're, you're going to make 60 K, you have to be able to make at that point, you're, you have a lot of responsibilities at that point. There's money on the table. You're playing with chips and you're playing with a lot of them and you're going to make a mistake and you got to be able to like own it and you got to be able to be, get lumped up. Um, I'm going to tell two stories from my favorite mentor. I hope he doesn't mind me calling him out. Wilson Brown. I mean, this guy made Corey. He works at this company. And Corey Dickinson's amazing. And he's helping me out. He's training me whenever, you know, the you know Jeff is not. Jeff DiGiulio is another amazing mentor. He's the He was kind of the rough and rugged, you know, you're going to mess up guy. And Wilson Brown is kind of like the, he's kind of like the drunken master, I guess I'll call him. He's a smooth operator. Corey Dickinson's another young guy like me. And Wilson, you know, knew I wanted to get an MBA. And I remember making a $40,000 mistake on a job once. And Wilson going, hey, how much does an MBA cost? And I was like, probably about 20, 40 grand. And he goes, well, there's your MBA right there, buddy. You know, and uh, so I'm like, you know, this huge lesson learned um, from this amazing guy, you know, just made a $40,000 mistake and he didn't even bat an eye. This is another thing. They, they taught me how to just make a huge mistake and you're going to fix it. I should, it should have been in the job and I missed it. Yeah. So, so yeah, like essentially they're joking like, Hey, that's about a year's salary. Right. And, uh, so, so yeah, so that was pretty, I mean, that was, you know, really, I mean, to be able to like your estimator is telling you that you, you know, telling you that you lost $40,000 on a job and to be a sales guy and to go, to be able to joke about it, you know, I couldn't believe it. But at the time I was like super sensitive and I was like so distraught and, uh, you know, I'm just working my butt off, but you know, you have to be able to solve problems. You, you're going to make a 40. I mean, like, and that's what the, the other estimator meant is that you're going to make a $40,000 mistake. You're to make a $50,000 mistake. Yeah. Do it fast. And another thing too, I think that he was trying to imply was that in this role mistakes happen you know, we have burn rates for a reason. We have contingency, you know, percentages and in, built into pricing for a reason, you know, like we'll fix it somehow we'll fix it. Like, and you just have to own up to it. You just have to make those mistakes. You have to own up to them. You'd make them fast, you know, sooner rather than later over communicate and just be willing to fix your mistakes, do whatever it took. And another thing too, I was just, I remember one time I called him, it was Friday at like eight o'clock and I called him. And I think I had made another mistake where I had missed something else. And I called him, and I'm on the verge of tears because, I mean, like, I'm working, like, 10, 12-hour days, man, because I just really want to impress these people. And it's, like, 8 o'clock on a Friday. I have a girlfriend in Charlotte, so, like, I'm not able to, like, I'm calling him on the road. You know, I'm, I'm going to get to Charlotte at, like, 10 or 11. You know, I miss my girlfriend. I, all I wanted to do all week was see her. And here I am working, you know, pretty late. And I remember calling him. And telling him, and again, he's just cool as a cucumber. He's like, dude, we'll fix it. And he's like, dude, you know what your, he was like, you know what your issue is? Is that you're like the guy at the free throw who really, really wants to make the free throw. And he misses every single free throw because he's trying so hard. He was like, dude, you just need to take a deep breath, dribble the ball like three times and shoot a free throw. And I had played basketball intramurals. 
in high school. So that just, it really meant, one, it meant a lot to me that he just knew I was going to be fine. Like, he knew I was going to be fine, and he was going to, you know, he was going to help me solve the problem. And, like, to hear, like, a reassuring, I remember crying, like, pretty much the whole way to Charlotte, man. And just him, just, like, because just to know that somebody has my back was, like, you know, when you're making these mistakes and you're working this hard, I think it, a lot of it was exhaustion, too. But, you know, and there's just, I know, like, those two stories kind of personified or kind of were a metaphor for how hard I worked and, they recognized it, and I got a huge merit raise, a huge merit raise at the end of, like, uh, maybe, like, a six-month period. And, uh, hmm, like, yeah, six or seven months, I got a huge merit raise. What a, You know, my, my manager at the time, was a, he's an amazing person. I don't know if he was allowed to do this merit raise, so I'm not going to call him out by name, but he was really, really cool. Um, and I'm well, making, like, at this point, I'm making well into my 60s. Yeah. So you get a huge raise, and it sounds like you had some really good mentors at this place who had, um, they saw your work ethic, they saw your your somewhat knowledge, but your lack of maybe industry experience, but they gave you enough runway to let you make some mistakes, and you just worked your butt off, and it sounds like they're amazing mentors. Um, you'll probably mold a lot of kind of what you mentor with, with people now off of, of how they treated you. So you get a, a merit raise because of how hard you're working. Was it having to do with the amount of stuff you sold? Was it, or was it just like hard work? In this business, you know, it's kind of like, you know, and this is kind of like the lesson I learned in Audible. You have a hit rate, you know, and you're probably not going to affect the hit rate too much. That's probably a company-wide change. You know, that's probably going to take like systematic differences. But if you have a hit rate, say you have a 20% hit rate, and you're quoting twenty million dollars worth of stuff. I mean, you're gonna your hit rate's gonna be five million dollars. And if you can get that quoting, if you just work your butt off and create systems and processes and procedures to be able to quote forty million, you've doubled that. You know, so it 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 wasn't necessarily anything I did, but it, it in a way it kind of was because I was just quoting more jobs, allowing our sales guys to just make more sales. So. Yeah, it was, in a way, it was, you know, how much I was working, how much they saw that I was working. This was, I mean, this had to be, what, 2012? This was when the economy was roaring back, right? There was a lot of investments. So the residential sector is roaring back. Um, and there's a lot of government spending, you know, at this time to, to kickstart the economy. And it was, So we were quoting a lot of jobs, and I was doing a lot, especially in Raleigh's a fast-growing area, you know. So quoting a lot of jobs, just getting there, putting in the work, that's how you got above 60. Awesome. So if we can recap. Um, college, dropped out of college, got back into college, changed majors, worked at Auto Bell, um, got a promotion, but your pay went down. <laughs> um, got involved on campus in fraternity, uh, held positions in there, got involved on campus in the blood drive, uh, set some records, didn't have a job coming out of college, worked in a completely different industry, got the job based on your network, um, show up, get the job, making working at a call center in an industry you didn't even major in, get to, uh, got, a, got a promotion somewhat, make a huge jump from $36,000 a year working a 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. call center job, move to a different city and you're starting in your upper to mid 50s and you're back in your field that you majored in 
and then you work your butt off, essentially, quote, twice as many jobs as most people, and that's how you get above 60. Sound right? Pretty close. <laughs> um, awesome. So that's it. You know, hopefully have you back on because you're definitely well above 60 now and doing a lot of really amazing things. But if you had something to tell that college kid or that kid at Auto Bell or that college dropout or that kid who can't find a job in his major, what do you tell him right now? Because there's a lot of people that just want to get to 60K. Because when you're at 60K, you can start saving a little money, finally tip the bartender. Um, what do you tell that kid? You're going to fuck up. You're going to fuck up a lot, so you might as well fuck up fast. I'm serious. Uh, don't be so damn hard on yourself because I can assure you that it, you're gonna mess up. A, you're gonna mess up a whole hell of a lot to get where you want to go, and there isn't a single person that hasn't messed up just as much as you have on you know the path to sixty. So, um, so you know, you know, every time you get a lick, every time you mess up, wear it as a badge of honor. You know, learn from it, admit your mistake. And uh, keep keep on going. You can do it. And then I would just recap. You didn't say it, but just keep investing in people and relationships because it sounds like that's what got you pretty far in life. All right, man. Well, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for hanging out in my place and, and interviewing. And I'll post um, just real quick. If anybody wants to find you or anything, where can they where can they find you? How can they get in touch with you if they wanted to grab a cup of coffee or anything like that? Oh man, if you wanted to get a, get in touch with me and grab a cup of coffee, I'd I'd love to yeah. I'd love to um you know, I'd just love to hear your story. Hopefully maybe you you'd want to hear more of mine and you could email me at joe.wadford at gmail dot com. Again, J O E dot Wadford Whiskey Alpha Delta Foxtrot Omicron Romeo Delta at gmail dot com. Email address ever. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for thanks for having us. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining, man. See you later.